This is unstructured. Hey, everybody. Today, I'm super excited. I have really, um, I'd say he's on the short list of my favorite authors, actually. Uh, Brian Freeman is an award-winning international bestseller. And this is one of those guys. And I put him in the company of John Sanford, a fellow Minnesotan, um, Michael Connolly, Harlan Coben, and couple others, uh, Joseph Fender, I would say. These are kind of my go-to authors. Like, okay, they've got a book coming out in a month and a half. I'll pre-order it now. I just flat out buy it on Audible and then listen to it. This is Brian Freeman. He's outstanding. This is exactly the kind of guy you want to listen to. How are you today? I'm doing great, Eric. It's great to be with you. Now, one of the things that I... um really enjoy about your books. And I started off with Immoral um, several years back. It was great to find it. I think you were three books in when I found it. And that's always a treat when I can actually binge slightly. But you have some unique characters. You're you're taking place in Minnesota, but a character that really um, impressed me is Maggie Bay. Now, how in the world did you come up with her? Because she's kind of going against a the uh, Swedish, Northern, or Norwegian, Minnesotan type. <laughs> you know, Maggie is, uh, is, is one of my favorite characters uh, in, in the Jonathan Stride series, and I think she's one of the favorites for, for a lot of readers and listeners as well. Uh, she is this, uh, this tiny little Chinese cop sort of out of place in, uh, in Scandinavian Duluth, Minnesota. The interesting thing about Maggie is that when I first developed the outline for my debut book, Immoral, which is what introduced uh, Jonathan Stride to readers. Uh, Maggie was not even in the outline for the book. Uh, and yet, as I was as I was writing the character of Stride, I realized that he was such a, you know, an intense, serious kind of hero that he needed someone that could kind of poke him in the ribs and uh, and cut him down to size a bit. And uh, I loved the idea of this uh, this little Chinese cop who could boss around these these tough uh, uh, tough Scandinavian six foot five Duluth cops. And uh, once I uh, once I wrote this snarky uh, uh, character into the Stride uh, book, uh, she just demanded a bigger and bigger role. And uh, uh, she kind of took over every scene that she was in. And so I knew that uh, she had to be coming back and, and had to play a, a large role throughout the Stride series. That's so awesome. And aren't those kind of, in a way, the best characters, the accidents? Yeah, exactly. They're the, the, the discoveries that, that that you don't see coming and the ones that, that really kind of take over the book. And I notice you kind of um, counterpoint her with uh, Max Gupo. <laughs> yeah, Max. Uh, I, I, I love Max. You know, he does not play a particularly large role in any of the books, but any time I think uh, uh, Guppo wanders on stage, uh, people start smiling because uh, he, he's uh, he's sort of like the he's built like the Michelin tire guy. And uh, uh, he, he's just uh, he's always sort of this voice of, uh, of of reason in the midst of the books. And uh, uh, he, he's uh, he's a he's a wonderful detective. Uh, and and yet uh, he, he always adds a little bit of humor to the books as well and and watching the counterplay between guppo and stride or guppo and maggie uh, it, it's just a lot of fun it's sort of funny i don't know if are you familiar with the comedian ralphie may you know i'm not um he was a sadly he died um last year but he was a very large comedian um you know morbidly obese but his wife um, was just this little skinny twig also a comedian they called themselves the perfect 10. And for some reason, every time I, I think of uh, Maggie and Max, I think of the perfect 10 because you've got this <laughs> little tiny <laughs> That's character right. there and then a big O right next to her. <laughs> exactly. Now, it's really interesting. Um, now, you grew up originally, um, actually, you're from, you were born in Chicago, yep. spent some time, I guess, in Chicago till you were 10. Yes. And then your formulative years were in San Francisco? Uh, yeah, just south of San Francisco in San Mateo on the peninsula. Uh, yeah, I, I was in Chicago uh, until I was 10, and, and then the whole family moved out to California. It was it was really not a very good move for me in a lot of ways. You know, I went from an area where I, I knew everybody to an area where I, I had no friends. There weren't really a lot of kids my age around that. Uh, and so it was kind of a it was kind of a tough time of my life when I look back on it. And yet, 
uh, that was really the time of my life that, that sort of made me a writer because one of the ways I dealt with the, the personal challenges uh, as a kid being out there is I just started writing story after story after story. And, and it was really that stretch of my life that uh, made me love writing and that, that turned me into an author. Okay, so the, it's the way you dealt with the isolation, I guess? Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. And then when it came time to go to college, uh, you know, I just knew that I wanted to go back to the Midwest. I mean, you can you can take the boy out of the Midwest, but you can't take the Midwest out of the boy. And uh, so I ended up going to uh, to Carleton, a small liberal arts college in southern Minnesota for for college. And that was where I met my uh, my wife, Marsha. And uh, we've been in Minnesota ever since. And what what made you choose Carleton? I mean, did you just take a map and say what's kind of near Chicago? But not, I mean. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it, it it just turned out to be one of uh, life's little quirks uh, as it uh, as it happens. Uh, my eye doctor in California was a Carlton alum, and uh, mm-hmm. he told my dad, uh, "Boy, you know, Brian should really be looking at Carlton. It's such a great school." And uh, that was how I discovered it. And uh, well, that was that was how life went. Excellent. And it was a small school, so you've kind of was it sort of like a homecoming to you then, in a way. In a lot of ways, yeah. I can remember my dad and I went out to visit Carleton. Uh, we we left on Thanksgiving Day uh, all the way back then. And uh, uh, the next day when we drove down to Carleton, we were, it had snowed overnight. So we were following a snowplow down Highway 3 into Northfield. And uh, uh, I was thinking, oh, this is just great. And of course, my dad, who'd spent about 40 years in Chicago, was going, why would anyone want to go back into this stuff? <laughs> that is kind of a question. That was coming out. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess that you were ripped away from it before you got tired of it. Yes, yes. Now, of course, so all these decades later, the, the winters do start to get a little old. <laughs> well, then you can move to where I'm from, Tucson. There we go. Exactly. There's a lot of people from there. But see, I'm the reverse of that. I don't have any desire to go back to the desert at all. <laughs> so I think that's amazing. Now, um. What I find interesting too is, I take um, I understand you live in the Twin Cities. Yeah, on the east side of the Twin Cities. That's right. Okay, and but your characters, your stories, everything is in Duluth. Uh, yeah, all of my all of my Jonathan Stride novels are are set up in Duluth, which is about two and a half hours north of here. And and as a result, I think a lot of readers assume that I live in Duluth. Uh, but uh, but I, I've never lived up there. I, I've just always thought Duluth just kind of has the perfect combination of elements for suspense novels. And, you know, we, Marsha and I talked about moving to Duluth when everything started happening with the stride books, but I kind of like still being an outsider because I think it's awfully easy to lose sight of the things that make where you live special and dramatic. Uh, you, you tend to kind of see right through them. It's, it's like my family out in the Bay area. I mean, they would never go to San Francisco after a while unless somebody came into town and they would sort of show them as, as tourists. Uh, and so I like the idea that I can still see Duluth with sort of the outsider's eyes because I think it allows me to see the drama of, of what the place is really like. It's interesting. So it's kind of a, you get to share a sense of discovery with the uh, reader, which may be yes. tighter. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. You know, and I've set books in a number of different places. I've got books over uh, in Door County in Wisconsin and down in Florida and Las Vegas. And and now I have a new series, the Frost Easton series set out in San Francisco. And so in all of those places, it, it really does give me a chance to, to share that that discovery with the readers. And, and I get to see it again through the, the eyes of this outside drama as opposed to sort of, you know, kind of getting getting spoiled at the idea of, the, well, you, you live in this place, you see these things every day. And, and so you start to recognize stop recognizing kind of how different and special they are that's interesting but um have you done any i don't think you've written about the twin cities much at all have you not not much a couple couple scenes here and there in the books but uh, i don't really i don't really write in the in the twin cities and i think that's part of it you know living down here uh it it doesn't feel you know sort of mysterious and suspenseful and dramatic to me uh in in a way that someplace like duluth does maybe because you know this is home this is where i am all the time now, I'm not actually familiar with both places. Um, I'm guessing Duluth is quite a lot smaller. It is. Yeah, absolutely. I, I In one of the books, I say that Duluth uh, is, a, is a small town pretending to be a big city. And I, I think that's very much the character of the place. It, it, it feels like a city, and yet it's small enough that you always kind of feel like you're bumping into your past and you're going to find someone you know around every corner. And, and so it's got that combination of, of the, the bigness and the darkness that you can imagine crimes happening the way they would in the city, and yet you still have that small town feel. Okay, that makes sense. And you have... Um 
a lot of starkness of elements, right? Um, with the, yes. Um, the lakes and the weather and... Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful but very extreme place, obviously. I mean, you've got, it's right on the shore of Lake Superior. It's in the midst of this amazing northern wilderness. Uh, but it's also uh, one of the most bitter places that you're going to find on Earth for, for several months of the year. And what is that with places? Uh, the most beautiful places, you do not want to be there year-round. <laughs> well, I, I suppose that's true. I, the, the places that are wonderful to be at in the, uh, the winter aren't necessarily where you'd want to spend the summers. Exactly. And and the reverse. It's kind of crazy because one of the most beautiful places I've been is Waterton Lakes, Canada. And they were complaining that they had snow in June. They just barely got it cleared out. And I'm like, oh, so gorgeous. But <laughs> there's there's the rest of the year they have to deal with. Yeah, we had to we had to reschedule three library events in, in southwestern Minnesota on April 19th because they had a blizzard down there. So, yeah, it uh, it, it does get a little crazy. Now, this time of year, though, has got to be just it's perfect. Yeah, this is, you know, in fact, I had a lot of Duluthians that were always uh, 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 kind of chiding me saying, well, gosh, so many of your books are, are winter books. You know, the, the the summers are so great here. Why don't you write a summer book? Well, my my last marathon. Jonathan Strideville was marathon. So I, I went and I, I, I blew up their marathon in, in June. So, you know, beware of what you wish for. You might get it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was wondering about that. And I was also wondering, um, how are you aging, um, Jonathan Stride? Uh, do you treat the the books like uh, at the tip or the end of the season? I mean, is he aging real time or slightly less? No, he's he's pulled off a pretty neat trick. Uh, when I first introduced Stride in uh, in Immoral, he was older than I was. And, and now, what, 14, 15 years later, I'm I'm several years older than he is. So I, I, I wish I could perfect that kind of aging process for myself. But uh, no, I've, I've deliberately tried to slow it down because I, I don't want to sort of, you know, have, have stride to still kind of ch- doing all these chase scenes when, when he's in his mid sixties. So I've, I've tried to age him at a, at a slower pace, which means the, 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 the time in which the books take place are actually fairly compressed. And so even though all these years have passed since Immoral came out, not the same amount of time has passed in, in stride time. You do some nice tricks with that though. Um, I've noticed like, You'll go back in previous time and use, I feel like, flashbacks or previous events that kind of, in my mind, tweak the timetable a little bit. Yes, and that is correct. Yeah, I mean, if you if you really, you know, uh, push the buttons a little too hard, you start saying, oh, wait a minute, didn't he say that that was in, in such and such year? Uh, so I, I, uh, I, 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 I kind of push that a little bit with readers because I, I want to tie them into the into the books, but I also don't want to. Uh, to feel like uh, uh, Stride is kind of, you know, galloping ahead too fast. That makes sense. How do you keep track of everything you've covered? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Uh, you know, some people will ask, well, do you have sort of a uh, a, a binder of, of facts and details about the character so you can keep straight what exactly has happened and, and you don't make little mistakes, which, you know, is probably something I should do, but I, I very deliberately don't do that because uh, I don't want to reduce stride sarita maggie any of the characters in any of my books to two-dimensional sets of facts on a page i want them to be real three-dimensional breathing living people to me and uh, uh and i i just think if i if i start sort of uh, writing down who they are that's that's taking away their humanity so i'd rather risk making mistakes and and slipping up on a detail here and there uh, uh, then, then kind of do that to them. I, I prefer to have them just come to life on the page and, and, and deal with that and, and try to remember those details, uh, and have them kind of share those details with me, uh, as opposed to, uh, keeping these kind of encyclopedic versions of what their facts are. And if you make a mistake, oh, it's an Easter egg for the readers. Exactly. Yeah. And they'll always catch me on it. So. <laughs> That's really interesting. So, uh, when you were, coming back to a character like you took a little bit of a break from stride for a couple of years yep and do you read the previous book just to get back in the mode or yeah good good question yeah i you know i wrote five stride books through the burying place and then i i felt like i'd put this poor man through such hell that you know he needed kind of a vacation so i i wrote uh, the bone house which was my first cab bolton novel and then i wrote a standalone spilled blood which actually won the award for for best novel in the thriller awards that was one of the great great moments of my life uh, but i knew i was going to go back to stride and and so the next book was the cold nowhere which which brought stride back and uh, uh, you know I, even though i was working on 
on other books. I kind of felt like Stride was at my side the whole time, kind of nudging me about when he was going to get back on stage. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I certainly went back to the burying place to sort of refresh myself about his character. And, and I also wrote a novella uh, called Turn to Stone. And, and I deliberately wrote that as kind of a way to re-familiarize myself and readers with Stride. It's, it's not a book that involves any of the other series characters. It's just Stride. And, uh, and so I thought it was a great way to kind of uh, bring him back on stage and, and give me an opportunity to really sort of reconnect with him as well. That's excellent. One thing I noticed that you've done, and I don't know how deep everybody's got in, but I actually, I read your book, The Agency, and <laughs> I enjoyed it. Um, yeah, it was, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. I feel like you are experimenting to find different voices and that the agency maybe helped you with the first Frost Easton book. Well, that's an interesting perspective. Uh, yeah, the agency was the agency came out under a pseudonym. So when people are looking, it's actually under the author's name, Allie O'Brien. Uh, it's totally different from my thrillers. It, it's got a female first person narration. Uh, it's set in in London and New York. Uh, it's 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 really closer to, to chiclet and humor mm-hmm. than than anything else. Uh, it was a lot of fun to write, and and I, I hope it's a lot of fun to read too. Uh, but but you're right. It it uh, I think it it helped me sort of. Um, uh, do a take a different approach to creating characters, and yeah, I think you see some of that in how the plot and the characters emerge in my first Frost Easton book, The Nightbird, particularly the character of, of Francesca Stein. Um, but what I think is really interesting is is I'm working on a project right now. In fact, uh, I'm doing. Uh, an audiobook uh, original mystery for Audible, uh, which will be out next spring. Uh, and that, too, has a female first-person narration. This one, though, is is sort of pure mystery. And uh, it's the first time I've done first-person narration in a mystery. And so even though The Agency was such a completely different book, it, it has helped me you know, doing something like that and writing in a first-person uh, perspective because that has helped flow into this audiobook approach. Do you find that that to be a challenge? Um, And the reason why I ask is especially first person opposite gender authors, I can usually pick them out. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting, uh, that's an interesting question. I, you know, I, I think there are challenges about first person. I mean, on one hand, um, it, there are parts of it that are a little easier to write because it it just sort of feels more like natural storytelling when you're going through the the first person perspective. On the other hand, yeah, it's it's easy to let you, too much of yourself come through in a first person narration as opposed to the character. So you really have to be conscious of that separation. Uh, and and I didn't find this in the agency in the other genre, but I'm finding it on the mystery thriller side. It it's for me for the way I approach things, it's harder doing first person on a mystery because I like to be able to get inside the heads of different characters. And I like to give the reader viewpoints from different people in the story. And so uh, having just one narrator in, in, in a mystery to me is, is, uh, is almost more challenging. I enjoy it uh, and I'm having fun with it, but I, I do think it's a more, it's a more demanding creative style. Hmm. Well, I, since I listen to audiobooks so much, uh, first person really resonates um, yeah. very well, uh, obviously in that. Yeah, and that's why I, I chose this for the audiobook original, is I, I thought that would be exactly true. So, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. How how did that come about? You know, it uh, uh, I my my Frost Easton books uh, come out through Thomas and Mercer, which is affiliated with with Amazon and and Audible, obviously also affiliated with Amazon. Uh, and so my my agent uh, uh, has been working with Audible for for a while now on their new program of audiobook originals. And uh, and she talked to me and and said, you know, is this something that you'd ever be interested in pursuing, doing something specifically for them for the audio uh, uh, market? And uh, I just to me, I'm always out there looking for new creative changes. Challenges. That's how the agency came about. Uh, that's why I've tried different uh, different series, different characters. Uh, so I thought this sounded like a uh, a great way to kind of cut my teeth in a in a new creative part of the uh, of the business. So uh, so I said, yeah, let's let's talk to them. And I had a, a plot idea that I'd been re- kind of mulling around in my head for a couple of years, and I'd never quite figured out what the right home uh, would be for it. And uh, as it happened, this that just worked perfectly for uh, for the audio side of things. So I was able to sort of apply that plot to what we were doing, and uh, we went from there. Do you find writing these different books in between and changing things up to be almost like an amuse-bouche or something like that? Um, 
between, uh, I guess, stride? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Uh, you know, it. Um, uh, I, I, I'm doing two books a year now, which uh, which which is you know brings its own challenges along with it. Uh, but uh, it it is, I think. Uh, I, I think it, it keeps you fresh by by working in 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 different genres with different characters with different voices. Uh, so I, I think um, if you if you're constantly doing the same thing, it's awfully easy to get stale. So I I like the idea of you know, kind of forcing myself to go in different directions. And, uh, and fortunately, uh, my readers have been very, very gracious and have come along for the ride with me. So, which I, I really appreciate. Yeah. You had mentioned that in a, a previous interview, which I thought was, um, pretty cool and actually foreshadowing for the audible that I believe it was either marathon or the more recent, um, frost Easton, uh, the voice inside. Oh, probably the Nightbird. Yeah. The Nightbird. Um, yeah when you you were actually um reading aloud to do your editing yes yes yeah yeah i i in addition to to working in different genres different characters uh different voices uh i try to to vary my my process with each book a little bit as well and do something a little different every time because that keeps me fresh from a standpoint of the creative process. And so uh, a, a couple books ago, I, I uh, did a, a very different approach to editing in terms, I, I didn't print out the book and, and edit manually, which I'd done for quite a while. Instead, I, I deliberately edited by reading the book aloud to myself and, uh, and, and that changed the process. In fact, you know, my wife is always my first editor and reader and, and uh, you know, she probably wasn't 40 or 50 pages into the book when she came up and asked me, so what did you do differently on this one? Cause it reads differently. And so I, I talked about how I was, do, you know, editing, you know, sort of orally uh, and, uh, and that made its way into the, the prose. I think it changes the way people read it. And uh, uh, I think as a result, it, also worked out really well for for the the audiobook version of it because you know when you're when you're editing by listening to how it sounds i think obviously that translates into into how it appears in audio as well and did joe bear give you any feedback on that book uh yeah joe noticed joe noticed it as well and uh you know it's it's always fun working with joe because uh you know, he always contacts me before he does the narration on every book to kind of talk through pronunciation and uh, and and kind of talk about his approach to the book. Uh, and uh, and so I, I I learn a lot from from him, too, in listening to what works for him and and what doesn't in in in, in reading the books. Uh, so, uh, of course, the funny thing is, I, I always am reluctant to tell Joe that, uh, you know, for all of the wonderful feedback I get from listeners uh, about his narrations, I can't listen to them myself. Right. Because, you know, I hear the, the book in my head in a certain way and so having somebody else read my words in a completely different style that just drives me crazy so i i can't do it <laughs> well it, different um different authors have different relationships with the, the narrators yeah yeah that's exactly right and that's one thing that's really been good about my books to date is joe has been a consistent voice on all of my audiobooks he's done every single thriller that i i have written and and so it'll be kind of a a switch next year because with the audible book having a, a female first person narration on the mystery we we obviously can't use joe for that so uh, <laughs> he has range that, but not I, uh, yeah not quite that much range i i did warn him that this time we had to go another way but uh, don't i i told him don't worry uh, frost and stride will be back soon <laughs> Okay, so those are the carry forth. Um, so does this mean you have three books coming next year, or are you going to back off and say, okay, the audiobook is one, and then I've got another? Yeah, I've got uh, my my third Frost Easton book, uh, the follow up to The Voice Inside, uh, will come out in January. That's called The Crooked Street, uh, and in fact, I literally just turned in the final edits on on that book today. Lombard? Uh, yes, that's right, that's right. So, how did you know that? <laughs> um. My my um, father grew up in Vacaville, California. Well, ah. well, he grew up in Elmira, which is so small people don't know what it is. So I'll say Vacaville is next to it. And then my right. father made a big deal about San Francisco, and we drove Lombard back in the 80s. Right, right. Yes. So, yes, The Crooked Street comes out late in January, and then the audiobook will come out sometime in uh, in the spring. And uh, uh, and so, uh, so yeah, so I think we'll, we'll probably we won't see Stride again probably until the following year. But uh, but uh, that's OK. He, he once again, I think he needs a little bit of a vacation. It's been a tough couple of years for him. <laughs> now, Cab Bolton, <clears throat> you see him crossing over into Frost Easton territory as well. How much are you going to mix it all up? 
Yeah, Cab is uh, my other hero, and and he appeared in in the Bone House and uh, in Season of Fear, and uh, uh, and and readers have been asking to see more Cab for a while, and uh, and so I uh, I wrote the latest Stride novel, Alter Ego, as a uh, as a crossover book, and and so Stride and Cab have a chance to meet for the first time in in that book, uh, and that was a lot of fun. I and I got great reactions from readers on that. I don't think it's the kind of thing I would do very often, uh, but uh, it was. Certainly, it was certainly a, a a little twist that just worked perfectly for for this particular book. Uh, Cab has some Hollywood roots because of his mother, who's a Hollywood actress, and, and alter ego revolves around the idea of this this Hollywood film being made in Duluth based on one of Stride's earlier cases. So all of the the stars kind of aligned for Cab to show up in this book. Uh, will I do that again? I don't know. I, I certainly never say never at this point, but uh, we'll 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 see what the, we'll see what the future holds. Speaking of crossovers, um. It's kind of popular, I think, with international thriller writers, things like that, that they do kind of mashups with uh, two series characters together in, in novels, like Michael Connolly write with somebody else or whatever. Have you done that or thought about that or been approached? You know, I've never, I've never done anything like that. I, you know, I certainly know there are folks that 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 do that pretty regularly. I, I, I'm not sure my writing style would ever quite work for that. I, I tend to be such a uh, you know, such a private, introspective sort of writer. I, I think it would be enormously difficult for me to kind of open up my creative process and, and work with someone else. I, I just, you know, I, I, I once again, I never say never because there's always interesting opportunities out there, and and I'm sure it would be a fascinating thing to do. But uh, at least at, at this point, I'm I'm not sure that would necessarily work with kind of how I approach things. Speaking of um, reaching out, knowing other writers, things like that. Um... How about your fellow Minnesota author, uh, John Sanford? Have you met him? Talked with him at all? Or I've I've met him a couple times. Uh, you know, uh, John was uh, uh, John was a finalist for for best novel in the Thriller Awards back when uh, the the Burying Place was a, a finalist as well. And uh, of course, the turkey actually came home with the awards. So uh, you know, <laughs> I I've had to give him a hard time about that. But uh, uh, you know, I John is John is such an amazing writer, and I mean, such a you know such a distinguished writing background he's actually a, a you know a pulitzer prize winning uh, columnist for the pioneer press uh so um uh you know i i don't tend to hang out a lot with other writers i don't think john does either but we all sort of know each other and and minnesota in particular has had such a an amazing community of mystery and thriller writers that uh, uh it, maybe it's the winters you know you, you just sit inside and you think dark thoughts so <laughs> i thought that too i was like minnesota is almost like a northern florida because florida's got a dense pack of they do yeah there. yeah 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 it's kind of minnesota noir up here so that's very cool now, um so if you're mostly by yourself i guess you're not involved with any kind of writing group or peers or anything like that yeah no that's never been my thing i i uh it, it's always been kind of me uh me staring down the book every day okay now i know that you are primarily a non-fiction reader now because well when the hobby and work become one then it life can suck but um, <laughs> yeah exactly what authors were influential to you as you were coming up yeah you know i uh, yeah i i mostly read nonfiction now i mean when when you write suspense all day long it curling up with somebody else's suspense novel at the end of the day kind of kind of feels like work <laughs> so uh, uh but uh, when i was growing up as, as a kid i i actually i didn't read that much in the way of mysteries and thrillers uh, yeah, i i read a few but uh, i would actually read more of the big dramatic authors folks like uh leon uris and and james mishner and, and irving wallace folks like that uh and i think that's one of the reasons why i don't necessarily write sort of typical thrillers they're more psychological thrillers because i still like the 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 intimate drama that i found in in books by those authors and uh, and and those are the kinds of qualities uh, that i like bringing into my books as well i would totally agree with that you have um i don't know if you've ever read richard north patterson i have yeah several of his books yeah okay there's a little bit of that quality to your books uh an emotional or, or Greg Isles. Um, yes. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah. 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 No, I, that's a, that's a great, that's a great comparison. I mean, uh, uh, Richard, you know, not, not Richard's, um, political books, but his, uh, his sort of, uh, legal thrillers, family thrillers, I, I thought just superb. And yeah, I agree. I, I think that's, that's my approach as well. Same with Greg and, and books like The Quiet Game, which one of my all time favorite novels. Uh, yeah, it's, it's that approach of really trying to get inside the heads of the characters and, and use that psychological puzzle to drive the drama of the book. Yeah, I really like that because it helps me um, care. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'm writing these books and there will be chapters where I'm, I'm writing and literally I've got, you know, tears running down my face because I get so intimately connected to the stories of the characters. And, uh, and I always figure if, if I can feel that emotionally connected to them, then hopefully the readers will as well. And that brings me to another question then. I'm going to guess possibly, do you start with character or do you start with a, a scene or outline? How do you? You know, it it kind of feeds on each on each other. I I have character ideas, I I have plot ideas, uh, and and I start to kind of weave the web together. And and the characters shape the story, and the story shapes the character. Sometimes, you know, I'll 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 have just kind of a uh, something that happens as a set piece in mind. For example, in in the cold nowhere. Uh, my Jonathan Stride novel, I, I really, as I started thinking through the plot, I didn't know anything about that book other than the fact that that Stride was going to uh, come home and uh, late at night to his cottage out on Park Point and find this teenage girl hiding in his bedroom closet. And, and she's soaking wet and says someone is trying to kill her. I didn't know who the girl was. I didn't know what her connection to Stride was. Uh, I didn't know any of the, the the details behind the mystery. All I knew was that was how the book was going to start. And I had to then answer all those questions as, as the plot took shape in my mind. Uh, and uh, But, you know, sometimes it uh, it, it will be um, uh, a particular character that, that seems to have an interesting story, and I'll start weaving something around them. It, 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 it really kind of all comes together and, and feeds on itself. So I, I don't separate out the plot and the characters. They really have to work together. It makes sense. I kind of feel like um, you're still filling in stride. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I'm not filling in Stride, then the series has to stop. I mean, the and the reality is, Stride is a is a different man today in in alter ego uh, than he was 14 years ago when we first met him in Immoral, and that's because of all of the things that have happened to him along the way. His his life and direction have changed. Yeah, I, I really like what you've done with him too, because I know you're trying to make it a point of nobody is a perfect creature and whatever, um, perfect sure. specimen hero. But you also don't take it the other way. With Stride, I feel like you've made him vulnerable, but haven't taken him all the way to anti-hero, which is yes. balance. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, I mean, the, the bottom line is, I, I think um, for my heroes, they, they, they need to be people that 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 readers can really empathize with and, and want to spend time with and, and can, can travel through the emotional ups and downs of their lives uh, uh, like a friend. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, Stride is, is not a superhero. He's, he's a, a human being. He doesn't always get things right. Uh, he makes mistakes both in his personal life and sometimes in his professional life too. But he's got this, this determination to get to the truth. And I think that's why readers uh, stick with him. That's yeah, really um Cool. Now, another question. Do you, do you ever get influenced by um, things around you? And I don't like spoiling books, but in Alter Ego, for example, you're using technology, very current, modern day, popular technology is a, a significant uh, plot point of the book. Yeah. Was it, did yeah. that come up before writing the book or is it a way for you to resolve a, a problem that you had in the book? Uh, you know, it's a little of both. Uh, I, I, yeah, I mean, there are, there are certain things, uh, uh, that come up in, in alter ego that are, that, that help drive the plot. And, um, uh, that's the very much true in, in the previous book, Marathon as well. Uh, and in Mar in the case of Marathon, it was very, very deliberate, uh, because I, I, I see social media as, as having, you know, a sort of a uniquely destructive power. Uh, to, to change people's lives. Uh, and, uh, and so I made Twitter almost a character in and of itself in, in Marathon. And, and so much of, of the, 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 the bad things that go on in Marathon end up being amplified by what's going on in Twitter. Uh, and in, in Alter Ego, I, I kind of decided to take it the other way. And so I use social media in, in sort of a more positive way in, in Alter Ego and in that it shows how that, that, 
that viral reach can also uh, translate into some unexpected, you know, positive things as well. So I, I in the two books, I ended up having an opportunity to kind of showcase sort of the, 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 the good and the bad, the yin and the yang of, of social media. Well, I like that because it makes it very current. And yeah. there are a lot of headlines and things now that that line up with it um, almost exactly. Yeah. And in, in the case of Alter Ego, uh, so much of uh, so much of the story uh, it feels very topical these days because Stride is dealing with his alter ego, this this Hollywood icon who uh, is playing him in the movie and, and has some sort of dark secrets he may not want revealed. Uh, and, and interestingly, I turned in the book uh, last September, just a couple weeks before the whole Harvey Weinstein thing broke open in the press. And uh, I had my editor on the phone saying, well, did, did you know something? <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing I thought was funny about it is uh, I, I'm reading it and thinking of uh, uh, Dean Casperson and – I kind of see him as an amalgamation of um, Tom Cruise and Paul Newman. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And yeah. Pull in Paul Newman because of Joanne Woodward. Yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah. And, and there's a little, there's a little bit of Tom Hanks, I think in, in, in him as an, an actor as well. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, that uh, uh, Dean Casper was, was such an, uh, such a, a fascinating character to create. And certainly he had a lot of, a lot of, uh, sort of a Hollywood montage you can create out of him. Uh, but what was particularly fun about uh, Dean Casperson is that Dean Casperson is, uh, is actually a real, uh, is a real person. Dean is uh, a Duluthian who participated in a library fundraiser to uh, purchase his way into the book and support the Duluth library. And so uh, uh, this, uh, this, 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 this poor guy ended up being a, a, a a sort of dark Hollywood icon in alter ego. So poor guy, come on. <laughs> Who are the fun characters? <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> Every actor doesn't want to play the hero all the time. That's true. Well, I had one, I had one uh, young woman who won a raffle uh, at a fundraiser to be a character in the book. And I, I went and, uh, I went and killed her in the prologue. So she, she turned out to be a very important character in the book, but she was dead the entire time. <laughs> well, you know, Hey, <laughs> they win the prize. There you go. <laughs> Congratulations. Now, oh, one important thing from your past that uh, we share, um, you are a Three Investigators fan. Oh, yes, absolutely. Alfred Hitchcock and the Three Investigators. I was I was a big Jupiter Jones fan uh, growing up. Uh, I, uh, I, c- I could read those books over and over and over. I, I could, too, and I, I don't know why they disappeared. I mean, they, they were... The, I'd say doubly as good as Hardy Boys. I mean, yeah, I agree. Yeah, I love the whole premise of the adventure and the trailer under the pile of at the garbage at the dump. I mean, it just it oh, they, had, were ter- they were terrific books. I mean, honestly, I've I have uh, I learned a lot about mysteries from from the way those books were constructed, uh, both in their use of setting and their use of characters. I it, they were they were enormously fun and great great books for 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 boys to read. Uh, honestly, I I agree with you. I, I'm surprised that they've kind of you know basically disappeared from from popular culture. I uh, so if anyone you know is listening out there and has the rights, I'm that I'd be happy to dive into uh, to children's literature to uh, to bring back uh, Jupiter Jones and the other investigators. That was one of my questions for you because that's become very trendy. My my wife is a librarian and um a lot of mystery authors, the Harlan Cobins, et cetera, are all doing YAs. Is that something that you've been approached to do or considered? I've certainly thought about it. I'd I'd love to do it at some point. Uh, you know, honestly, for me, it's it's kind of a question of finding finding time to pursue a project like that because uh, uh, writing you know two two plus books a year, it, it, you start to run out of uh, of of uh, days in the uh, in the week pretty quickly. But uh, I, yeah, I would I would really enjoy uh, getting more involved either in in YA or in middle grade fiction. I think there's uh, there's a lot of interesting stories to tell with that. And as you mentioned, you're doing two books a year now. What what is your process? Uh, you know, I try. I, I typically write each book. You know, I don't overlap. I, I try to get a book finished and then move on to the next one. Uh, trying to work on more than one book at the same time tends to tends to drive you crazy. Uh, fortunately, you know, here I am, fourteen, fifteen years into the business. I've I've got. 15, 16 novels out, uh, you, you have enough sense of, of the process that works for you that uh, uh, you kind of understand what you need to, you know, how you need to structure your data to get done what you need to get done. But uh, it, it certainly puts the pressure on. There's no doubt about it. Well, how do you structure your day? Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, you just have to, you, you just have to kind of set 
uh, kind of set deadlines for yourself. And, and uh, you, you, uh, people ask, you know, well, what do you happens when you get writer's block? Well, you, you really kind of have to write your way through it. You just have to keep getting words out. And, uh, uh, and that kind of gets you through those periods where the inspiration may, may not be there. And, and, you know, creativity is a strange thing. I mean, there are times where everything seems to be flowing and you get to the end of the book and you go back to that section, you go, no, no, that's got to be totally changed. Uh, and there are times where, you know, every word, you just feel like you're dragging it out of yourself. And, and then you get to the, the editing process and you realize, well, that section was perfect. You don't need to change a thing. So. Okay. So do you sometimes need to get distance from what you've written before you make uh, decisions? I, you know, I, I typically do, but, uh, you know, it, it, again, it, inspiration is a funny thing. Uh, Alter Ego was far and away the fastest book I, I ever wrote. I wrote the, wrote and edited the entire novel in the course of basically 10 weeks last summer. I've never written a book anywhere close to that fast. Uh, and it meant I was kind of in this, this seven day a week, uh, exercise. If, if my previous book was marathon, this one could have been called sprint. Uh, and, uh, and yet I, the reader reaction to alter ego has just been overwhelming. So, you know, there's something about that concentrated, uh, creative frenzy that uh, that I think makes its way onto the page. So there's there's something to be said for that approach. I mean, I think you get good results, but it's also a very uh, intense and demanding kind of stretch to put yourself through that. Yeah. And on that, you know, not to harp on it, but are, are you an eight to five writer or do you just bury yourself? To, I, I mean, how do you mix having a life, having a wife, you know, things like that and, and the writing? Yeah. There's, yeah. 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 I, I typically, you know, during most of the year, I'm typically a Monday to Friday guy. I mean, I spent so long in the typical workforce that uh, I, that kind of still just makes sense to me. So yeah, I'm, I'm usually writing, you know, eight to five and, and what I, what I'm doing on any given day will, will vary depending on where I am in the book. Um, typically what I find is that I'm kind of blocking out a chapter in the mornings and then most of the words are in the afternoon, but uh, it, it, it's usually not safe to call anything a typical day because uh, it, it tends to change a lot depending on where I am in the book. Okay. So you might be having a hot day and you're like, okay, uh, hold off dinner. I'm going to just, yeah. Sure, yeah. And, you know, and 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 uh, in the early stages of a book, uh, it tends to go slower because you're still getting to know the characters. You have to get the get them speaking to you and talking back to you on the page. And, and the, the later part of the book tends to go faster because at that point, it's almost as if the characters are in charge. and They're kind of carrying you through the story. Have you ever backed yourself into a corner? Ah, uh, a, a little bit. Uh, you know, I in in my book stripped. Uh, in my early books, I I outlined in much more detail than I do now. Um, I think the more confidence you gain in in the the writing process, the less you feel the need to sort of lock your yourself into a particular outline. But in stripped, I I had a very detailed outline before I started. Uh, and uh, and yet, as the characters developed on the page, there was one particular character that. I knew that readers were simply not going to accept the fate that I had planned for her at the end of the novel. And so I needed to, I needed to change that. And, uh, uh, and that was kind of where I really started listening to the characters. Uh, but it, it did kind of leave me with no ending uh, two thirds of the way through the book. And, and suddenly I had to kind of think where, where is this really going? Um, but the good thing is anytime you start to sort of wonder, you know, where are the characters taking you? Uh, chances are, uh, there's a there's a better twist. There's a better mystery built into what's already come up on the page. And uh, and that's what I've always found is you can you can go back to how that character was taking shape earlier in the book. And there's always a secret waiting for you that you may not even have seen coming. In the early days, um, you've you're very famously an overnight sensation, which I actually am being serious. Yeah, well, it the yeah, standard, immoral. Immoral took off pretty fast. I mean, that was after 20 years of, uh, of, of, you know, knocking on the door and getting nowhere. But uh, Immoral, you know, we had such a wonderful run with that. It was selected as an international book of the month by Bookspan. So it became the main selection in the Literary Guild and the Book of the Month Club and uh, book clubs all over the world. We sold the book in 17 languages. And uh, uh, it, was a, it was a finalist for Best First Novel, I think, in five separate award programs. So, yeah, it was a, such an amazing, amazing way to get started uh, in the business, uh, which, which was nice after, uh, after having written five books in the course of my life that are, are still sitting in my nightstand drawers. So. Yeah, that was my um, question. What I meant by overnight sensation is the average overnight sensation when they've looked into it is 10 plus years. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so you, you actually fit in that line because people don't see you working. 
They only right. see, okay, I just heard his name yesterday, and now he's getting the McAvity Award, or now yeah. he's doing this. But while you were toiling on the books in the drawer, were you actually trying to sell those books, or did you literally write them a private and say, no, not ready? Uh, that it varied. Um, the early books were mostly for me. The last couple of books, uh, yeah, I would send out queries to agents and publishers, and you know, they would just come back in pristine condition. You know, paperclip, not even moved, and uh, you knew no one had spent thirty seconds looking at what you sent in. So uh, I, I learned pretty fast that uh, you, you need to have some connections. You need to find people that will will help you get noticed and help someone pay attention to you. And, and so with Immoral, I was very fortunate to have a couple, uh, a couple good colleagues that uh, were able to point me in the direction of, uh, of, a, of a literary agent in, in London and, uh, and, and get her to read my book. And, and that's, the, that's the bottom line. I mean, you need to have the product, but you also need to find a way to kind of get someone to, to pick your book out of the, the stack and actually pay attention to it. And that was Allie Gunn, right? That's right, yeah. Okay. And she also... Um was your co-author. Yeah, on the agency, uh, the, the the idea of the agency that was really her her brainchild was to do something like that, but she was she was not a writer uh, and so she asked if that was something that I'd be interested in tackling and uh, again to me I I love doing things differently. I'd love creative challenges, so I thought it would be a lot of fun to to write in such a completely different uh, genre and style. So uh, we had a lot of fun with that and and uh, Allie really, you know, brought me into this business. Uh, it's, it, uh, it, it was enormously sad. We, we lost her very tragically and unexpectedly a, a few years ago, uh, uh, 45 years old, and she passed away in her sleep of, uh, of a cerebral hemorrhage. It was just, just, you know, just awful. So. Yeah. She sounded like a pretty amazing dynamic person. She, she was a force of nature. Absolutely. Now moving to, um, I guess one of my last questions is, how do your sales actually break down? Because the industry seems to be changing rapidly. You seem to be on the leading end of it, like um, not quite to Stephen King level who will do everything. I think he'd print out a book on a cereal box just to see how it went for giggles. But you're doing an audiobook exclusive, you know, one series. I think Frost Easton is more uh, Kindle oriented yep. versus a traditional publishing route with a stride and uh, standalones, I guess. How, how do they... Um, overall breakdown like are you seeing a real impact from say audiobooks versus um other means uh yeah i I, you know i think i would say yes to all the above i think one of the one of the ways that we have seen the the publishing industry shake out after the recession in in 2009 and and the the complete overhaul of the industry based on you know ebooks and self publishing and and just these you know tremendous wrenching changes that that really made the the industry kind of question every everything it thought it knew about publishing um i think what you see now today is uh you've got publishing breaking down into to very distinct markets that don't necessarily overlap all that much. I mean, I think the the Kindle market uh, is is very, very different than the print market uh, with, in many cases, very, very different readers and uh, different ways of marketing to them. Uh, print still, you know, works in very traditional fashion. And then now you have uh, audio uh, books as, a, as its own distinct market. And uh, uh, while there are some readers that will occasionally listen to audiobooks, what, what I find is that the majority of audiobook listeners tend to be very uh, platform specific. They, if they're audiobook fans, that's the way they read. They listen to audiobooks. And um, as a result, yeah, you, you, you have very different audiences and, and you need to sort of approach them differently. So it's one of the reasons that I've done such different projects is to really be able to deliver products to each of those audiences so frost has yeah been very much based on on the the kindle approach stride still you know uh, heavily traditional in print and now you know working with audible for uh, for the audio original as well that's interesting so in a way though the audiobooks bridge your they do yeah because all of the books have been available in audio um and uh, uh but i i think as a result audio has become such a distinct market that that's one of the reasons i really loved the idea of doing this project for audible is uh, uh is is to really kind of give you know something special to the to the listeners out there okay and it's interesting because i have listened to all of them there are there are differences in them um the frost frost easton is aptly named because it's definitely a much colder um ironically colder more aloof scenario it's a little more fraught 
and well, it's darker. I think I think the frost books are are darker than the the stride books in some ways, uh, and a little more out there. I I, I deal with uh, I, I kind of take a few more chances with the uh, with the plots in in the frost Easton books, uh, just to, to you know have a little more fun with that and give my my, my creativity a license to kind of uh, uh, go in ways that I, I wouldn't take stride. So uh, yeah, it, yeah. So it is it is different. Is that the flexibility of the ebook though? Because there's some... I think I think yeah, I think it is. I think it is. And working with a different publisher. They're they're looking at different things. Uh, and, and for me, the whole point of doing different series is it allows you to tell different stories and bring in different characters. So, Well, cool. So now what do we officially have coming up next? Uh, the official next book uh, will be the third Frost Easton novel. That is The Crooked Street. That'll be out uh, in late January, and uh, then I'm working right now on the neck on this audiobook original for Audible that we expect will probably be out May or June of next year. Kind of depends on how uh, the timing of that goes, but that's what we're looking at. And uh, uh, and then uh, I've got a lot of different ideas on the on the burner for where we go with Stride and what happens next with Frost. And I've got a a standalone that I'm playing around with. So. Uh, uh, so I, I will hopefully bring even more surprises in, in 2020, but uh, I, I don't exactly know yet what they'll be. Well, very cool. Now, where, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me on the web at bfreemanbooks.com. That's one word, bfreemanbooks.com. So they'll find information about all of my books out there on, and links to where they can find them. Uh, and they can also hook up with me uh, on Facebook. Uh, my uh, Facebook page is facebook.com slash B Freeman fans, uh, facebook.com slash B Freeman fans. Uh, and I love connecting with readers. Uh, it, it's always a lot of fun to, to share notes back and forth. So I always encourage people to, to post on my page, send me emails uh, and, uh, and, and stay in touch uh, about how they like the books that, uh, that that's a big part of it for me. And before we go, you have a podcast of your own. Can you plug that real quick? I, I do. Yeah. You can, you can go out to, to facebook.com slash true story radio. Uh, and uh, I have a podcast where I interview uh, nonfiction authors. I, I have sort of an eclectic, uh, eclectic tastes in uh, history, uh, memoirs and, and biographies. So I'm always looking for interesting new nonfiction books that I can bring out to, uh, to readers. And uh, for me, it, uh, it's kind of fun. It gives me a chance to be a bit of a fanboy. I get to, to interview <laughs> the authors that, uh, that I enjoy. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you, Eric. Hey, everyone. Eric here. I want to thank you again so much for listening. I know your time is valuable, so I really appreciate you taking some. If you like what you hear, please spread the word. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as Unstructured P, as in podcast. Also, you can review the podcast in whichever app you use. It really helps a bunch to spread the word. Thanks again. Now, tonight's adventure into the unknown. Shut up and sit down. Hey, it's Sarge. And Frenzy. From the Sarge Approved Podcast. Uh, If you're not familiar, the Sarge Approved Podcast has a guest every episode. Featuring uh, people like actors, comedians, uh, survival experts, authors, martial arts experts. Basically a whole gamut of badass people. Yes. And you can check out all our episodes on all the podcast platforms, iTunes, Spreaker, uh, uh, Stitcher, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio. And you can check us out on all our social media, Facebook. Instagram, Twitter, all the things. It's all at Sarge Approved. Yep. Check it out, and we hope you enjoy it. Bye.